Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, and I'm the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to do something that I think is really important. In this sermon, I'm preaching on Jesus appearing to someone after he died and came back to life, and how that appearance changed the person's life forever. While I hope that all of my sermons are impactful, I think that this one can be particularly valuable because it shows how belief in Jesus, his death and resurrection, can change lives. It can bring peace from our inner struggles, reconciliation with our enemies, forgiveness from our guilt, purpose that goes beyond our circumstances and our lives, and life that goes beyond death. It brings hope to the hopeless, forgiveness to the guilty, and worship to the doubter. It's a big deal. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Can you think of someone that needs what belief in Jesus, his death and resurrection has to offer and share it with them? I know that that is kind of a big request, but belief in Jesus changed my life in such a wonderful and profound way, and I want others to have that same experience. I hope you're the same. I think, or at least hope, that this sermon can be used by God to make that happen. So please share it with someone. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I also hope it will be used by God to change the life of someone you know. We are almost to the end of the book of John, and I'm amazed that when I start preaching on something, how quickly it seems to be behind me. And uh, as I said a couple weeks ago, last year we did the book of Romans, which was awesome. And now we are just quickly moving to the end of John, and we're finishing it by talking about these stories where people saw Jesus, where Jesus appeared to people after having died and come back to life. And today we encounter, as I mentioned earlier, this man named Thomas who doesn't believe at first and gets the title throughout church history, despite, as I'll I'll share in just a second, not being that bad of a guy, he gets the title Doubting Thomas. And I also mentioned this, but I think there's there's this there's some reasons, two mainly uh, reasons, two main reasons that we we kind of can be hesitant to believe things that we hear, and they're really on like the opposite end in a lot of ways. These two reasons that I think we can be hesitant to believe something, especially something that seems good and important and valuable and something that we would like if it were true. And I think the first reason that we suspend belief, if you will, is because we don't want something to be true. And I think the second reason that we suspend belief is that we don't want to get our hopes up in case something isn't true. And then you can see that pretty easily, you know, all around us. But like in the first, you know, we don't want it to be true. Like whenever somebody hears about a tragedy, I mean, this is part of the the steps of grieving, right? Like an initial reaction is to deny. It's to say, no, that's not possible. I mean, you ever been around somebody who hears that their loved one has just died? There's a like, I can't believe that, you know, I mean, that's a that's a natural reaction for us. So we often suspend belief because we don't want something to be true. And then on the other side of that, we can suspend belief because, like I said, we don't want to get our hopes up. And you see that when somebody hears, you know, far too good of news, right? Like if I walked up to you and said, hey, 
I have a lottery ticket and you won, you, you would not want to just go, I'm going to go spend it all because I'm so excited, but you would, you would suspend belief at least a little bit, right? Hopefully you trust me and all those things, but you would suspend belief because you wouldn't want to get crushed. You wouldn't want to have your hopes dashed to the ground when you found out, if you found out it wasn't true. And I think when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, that both of those things are, are things that people suspend belief over. I think that frankly, most people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus today, it's because they just don't want it to be true because they know that it, their lives might look differently and uh, they, that they have to consider you know, the ramifications of that and they have to admit that, that they've been wrong about Jesus in the past and that he's more than a swear word. And so I think that that is part of the reason that sometimes people, despite you know, all of the hope that the resurrection can bring, all of the joy that the resurrection can bring, the life that the resurrection can bring, they're really hesitant to believe. But on the other side, I think like Thomas in this story, I think there are people who think, wow, if I put my faith in that and it turns out not to be true, or I come to the conclusion later that it's not true, that will really be devastating. And so they're hesitant to dive in because what if they get to the end and they find out it's not true, that would be crushing. And in this story today, I think that we really have that more than the other side. We have this guy named Thomas who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus first. And I think, we don't have this written down for us, but I think he's scared to believe, he's hesitant to believe because, because he wants it to be true so very much. Now, for any of you who have doubted, I think that this sermon will be encouraging, and I hope that it will call you to at least consider believing in the resurrection of Jesus. But for those of us who do believe, this is what I hope, and, and if you know the story, you'll guess where this is coming from. If you don't, then you won't, but, but I hope that, that this sermon reminds you that the, the resurrection of Jesus, the, an, an encounter with Jesus, should compel you to worship. I want you to believe, and if you believe, I want you to worship. And here's how it starts in John 20, 24. Now, Thomas. I want to stop there, and I want to talk about Thomas for just a, a minute or two, because in this story, besides Jesus, Thomas is the main character. If you've heard of him before, you know his nickname probably, Doubting Thomas, like I said before, but he was also known as Didymus, which means twin, so it's pretty widely believed that he was a twin. Uh, we don't know who with, but he may have been a twin, which I just think is interesting and adds to the story in some way. Uh, he was one of the 12 of uh, disciples, the main guys that followed Jesus around, hung out with Jesus, served Jesus, served with Jesus, did ministry with Jesus, all of those things. In John eleven sixteen, he's not a doubter, but instead he's a guy who's willing to die with Jesus. The story goes like this. Jesus has been told that Lazarus, this guy that he loves, is sick. And Jesus says like, okay, let's go. And, and the disciples look at Jesus and they're like, wait, like we can't go back to Judea. That's where Lazarus lived. It's like a region. And we can't go back there because they just tried to kill you there. And Jesus tells them like, hey, this guy is 
dead. Uh, he says sleeping. They don't get it. Then he says, well, he's actually no longer living. But we're going back there so that God might be glorified. And Thomas, after Jesus says, let's go back to Judea, it says this. It says that he said, let's go back there to die with him. Listen to John eleven sixteen. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, if you just know him as doubting Thomas, I don't feel like that's fair. Like he was willing to die with Jesus, or at least he expressed a willingness to die with Jesus. In John 14, 5, in Jesus' farewell discourse, which we studied just a bit ago at our church, Thomas is confused about where Jesus is going, but it also represents how much he wanted to be with Jesus. I mean, he says he's willing to die, but he also was like, hey, how are we gonna go where you're going when we don't know where you're going, Jesus? And Jesus follows that up by responding with one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, John 14, six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then finally, we know that he's there when a replacement is chosen for Judas after Jesus goes back into heaven. And finally, Finally, we know that he wasn't in the room for the story that I preached about last week. Now, if you weren't here, let me get you up to speed. Jesus has come back from the dead. Uh, we saw that two disciples ran to the tomb and there was nothing in it, but they didn't see Jesus. But then this woman named Mary, another disciple of Jesus, she met Jesus, saw Jesus, encountered Jesus, and come back to tell them, and, uh, and they thought it was interesting. But then they were huddled in a room, scared to death, and Jesus appears in their midst despite the doors being locked. And Thomas was not there. In fact, that's what it tells us in the next two ver verses. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. The disciples do what should be natural to all of us. It's not always natural, but it should be. They encounter the resurrected Jesus. They come to believe that Jesus has come back to life. And they, they tell Thomas, I mean, we saw Jesus, and he doesn't believe them. In fact, he is uh, adamant that he is not going to believe until he touches the wounds of Jesus. Notice, in essence, that he says what a lot of people say, unless I see it and feel it, unless I see God and feel God, unless I experience God, I will not believe. Now, before you go, what an idiot. He actually just demands the very same experience that Jesus, in the story that we talked about last week, offered to all of the disciples. If you weren't here, you don't remember, Jesus shows up and he's like, peace be with you. And they're like scared even more because they think a ghost is standing in the room. And Jesus said to him, check out my hands and my side and my feet. It's actually me. And so Thomas actually just demands the very signs that these other disciples have already seen. Leon Morris says, this is often taken as indicating that Thomas was a more skeptical turn of mind than the others. And of course he may have been. But another possibility is that he was so shocked by the tragedy of the crucifixion that he did not find it easy to think of its consequences as being annulled. 
In support of this is urged his preoccupation with the wounds of Jesus as these words of his show. You hear what Leon Moore said there? It's not like Thomas was doubting because he didn't want to believe. It appears that Thomas is doubting because he had been so hurt by the crucifixion, the execution, and everything that surrounded it of Jesus. Now, I want you to I want to try for a moment because this is, I think this is where a lot of people can struggle with the relationship with God. A lot of people have some experiences in their lives that that um, were, you know, centered on God, whether that be church experiences, church friends, and in some way, somehow that thing let them down. Now, I would say that's not Jesus letting you down, but this experience is not uncommon. They thought like God's going to be the end all be all. It's great. It's going to be awesome. My life's going to be better. And then it, and then it crashes down in one way or another. I grew up in a church where, and this thankfully didn't have an effect on my faith, but I think it did probably a lot of people, where, where the pastor who was widely loved and, uh, you know, a great preacher and the church grew like crazy, uh, he committed some egregious moral failures and had to step down. That hurts people, right? Now, Thomas's experience is very different, but think about it. He's given up his life to be with Jesus and he's served with Jesus, and he's believed that Jesus is the one who has come to make things right, to set things right for the Israelites, and as an extension for all of humanity. He thinks that this is where freedom is going to come from, and and out of that, he finds his hope, and he finds joy, and he's been with Jesus just as a friend all of this time, and then, and then, and then, in a one-week period, it all seems to come crashing down. They enter into Jerusalem, then Jesus is arrested, then Jesus is tortured, then Jesus is killed. Thomas had gone from just, you know, I'm living a normal life to like, this could be it, to absolutely devastated. And now people are saying, hey, I know you saw that thing where he was crucified, he was nailed to a cross, but oh, it's okay, he's alive again. Thomas doesn't want to get his hopes up. And I don't think you would either. And some of you, maybe some of you online, like you've been let down, you've been hurt by, by things that you thought were centered on God. Again, I don't think it was God, but you've been hurt by these things. And so when you think about the resurrection and all it can do for you, it can be hard to believe. And as we'll see, that doesn't mean you shouldn't believe, but I understand that it can be hard to believe believe. By the way, Jesus again shows up here. Uh, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, I want to just say that this, you may not care about this, but I I think this is interesting. Uh, A week later, this is Sunday again, and it's pretty clear that The author of John is actually telling this story in the way that he's telling it, giving us this date here, this time frame, uh, because he's showing his first century readers why Christians worshiped on Sunday. And so uh, when it says a week later there, you can know that John writing to a lot of people who are Jewish who used to worship on Saturdays, he's probably including this, this time frame in order to say, hey, there is a reason that we now 
worship on Sundays. I don't know why the doors are locked again. It seems like after having encountered the resurrected Jesus, they would have gone out there and been a little less scared, but they have the doors locked and then Jesus shows up with the same greeting, peace be with you. And I talked a lot about this last week. If you missed the sermon, go back and listen to it because I think we all need peace. And I do think that the resurrection of Jesus is the thing that can give us ultimate peace. Now, the story continues. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Imagine this moment for a second. It, um, it feels magnificent having grown up thinking about it, and it is magnificent. It also feels a little bit awkward to me. Uh, it's clearly meant to be told in a miraculous way because Jesus wasn't there when Thomas had said, there's no way I'm believing unless I touch his wounds. But also like, I mean, poor Thomas, like Jesus is standing there. You've been so brash and I won't believe unless. And then Jesus is kind of calling you on that all of a sudden. And, and he shows up and he says, here, you, you can touch my wounds if you want to. I think this moment is, is awkward and uncomfortable and miraculous and all of those things. It points again, by the way, to something that I, I hope, man, if you've been around and you've missed this, then, then I haven't done a very good job preaching the way through the book of John, but it points again to who Jesus is. I mean, this book is not really centered on on anything other than who Jesus is. And as an extension of that, what Jesus did for us, but even that points to who Jesus is as Savior. The book began with a statement, and this is gonna be really important in just a minute, about Jesus being God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. It shows us that Jesus was the creator of all that has been created, and yet he himself had not been created. He was eternal. And the book moves from there and shows us what it looks like for an uncreated creator to enter into human existence. And it shows this, this being through his miracles and through his interaction with others and his incredible preaching and, and the way he treats people. It shows us who Jesus is. That's why the book is written. And again here, upon his resurrection, uh, John takes us almost all the way back to the beginning. There's a story at the beginning, right after, I mean, right after, it tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. There's this story about a guy named Nathaniel, and uh, Nathaniel's friend comes to him and is like, hey, we, we found the Messiah, and, and he, this is his response, uh, because he's told that Jesus is from Nazareth, and so he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? He's like, no way, God. I mean, that, like, that's like, you know, somebody awesome coming from Salem. Like, I'm from, I can say that. I'm from the Salem area. Like, there's no way, right? Like, that can't happen. And, and then Jesus shows up and he's like, he's like, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? Like, what do you, how do you know who I am? And then Jesus supernaturally tells him that he saw him while he was sitting under a fig tree. And it's one of the first clues in the Gospel of John that this is, this is no mere man. Like, this is the God-man. God entered into flesh. God in human form. And now this same thing kind of transpires almost at the very end of the book. 
Here's Nathaniel talking to his guys in a locked room. Jesus isn't around. And when Jesus shows up, he knows exactly what he said. It all connects to the theme that this is the word of God. This is God in human form. He is the Messiah, the son of God who has come so that if you will believe in him, you may have life in his name as John 20, 31 says. And so John brings it back together in the narrative. And then I think we read what maybe is the climax of the entire book. It's the pinnacle moment for sure. It's maybe the moment that everything else has pointed to. Here is what Thomas, how Thomas responds in verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. One author said this, Thomas is not merely a pathetic doubter. He's a paradigm of many Christians who are capable of great possibilities as well as hesitations in faith. I want to point out that we should be grateful in some ways that Thomas was a doubter because, because we all doubt and we all struggle. And this shows us, I think, in some ways that, that Jesus is not angry about our doubt he doesn't hate us because we doubt. He doesn't reject us and send us to hell because we doubt. That's not the story here, right? I mean, he actually gives Thomas what Thomas wants, an opportunity to have the proof that he needs. I would point out that it doesn't seem here that Thomas actually takes him up on that option for proof. Instead, the very sight of him, he makes this incredible declaration. At the sound of Jesus he believes, and then he declares Jesus to be Lord and God. Now remember, I just said this. How does the book begin? The Word is God. Jesus is the Word, we learn as we move through the book. And so we are all the way back to the beginning of the book where he says God is entering into the world. God has entered into the world in the per- word, world in the person of Jesus. This is the first declaration of Jesus' divinity, maybe in human history. I mean, Thomas puts it out there in a way that scholars who don't believe Jesus to be God still have to try to find a way around, and they don't ever find a way around it because this declaration is just so clear. He just says, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, my Lord and my God. Gerald Borchert says, in the process of writing this gospel, the evangelist has proclaimed that Jesus was active in creation, the word who became incarnate in flesh, the sin-bearing lamb of God, the Messiah, the son of God, the king of Israel, the new temple, a teacher sent from God, a new symbol of God's power exhibited through Moses, the evidence of the love of God, the savior of the word world, equal with God, the authority and judgment, the agent of God, the fulfillment of scripture, the expected prophet, the I am, the supplier of living water, the one who is from God, the son of man, the consecrated holy one, the lifted up one, the glorified one, the preparer of his followers' destiny, the non-abounding one, the one who is in whom we must abide and who is the basis for the fruitfulness of his followers, the sender of the paraclete, the bearer of truth, the crucified king, and now the risen Lord and God. 
It's like John has moved us through all of these amazing statements and proofs about the character and nature of Jesus. And it all comes pouring out in a single line, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. I think it's important for us to recognize something that Thomas recognizes here. If Jesus came back from the dead, then we should recognize him as divine. I think that the world wants to see Jesus as this amazing character often who did wonderful things and was really nice. But if he truly came back from the dead, and I think there is incredible evidence for that. If he truly came back from the dead, then we can't just look at him as a nice guy who you know, was a good teacher and a great example, but we actually need to fall on our knees before him and worship him as Lord and God. If the resurrection is true, then we must believe and we must worship because we believe. I think it's important here to show you that that not only does John take us back to the beginning of his book, but he actually, in some ways, in, in telling this story to us, takes us back into the Old Testament. Because in some ways, Thomas is now declaring, you are the God of our ancestors. In Psalm 35, 23, it says, awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God and Lord. The same Jesus who was God, or same God who was God of David is Jesus. What a, that's incredible to me to think about this Old Testament king who's famous in Israel. Thomas in this moment is declaring Jesus to be that same being. Deuteronomy 6, 4, very famously, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every Jewish person knew this. They recited it every single day. And so when Thomas bursts forth in this incredible praise, my Lord and my God, he is declaring Jesus to be the God of his ancestors that has been worshiped for centuries and centuries and centuries. On top of that, I want to iterate something I said last week, and that is the term Lord is very important. It's a word that can just mean sir, but after the resurrection of Jesus, the word grows in theological importance and weight amongst Christians. And really what it comes to mean is that Jesus is the one that we follow, serve, obey, and worship. Leon Morris is the one who is now so obviously alive, although he had died, could be addressed in the language of adoring worship. I think this story calls all of us to do exactly what Jesus has said here, to stop doubting and believe. But it also calls for those of us who do believe to worship. And I think we can drift from this. We, we can you know, be people who follow Jesus, who love Jesus, who believe in the resurrection. But over time, we aren't living lives of worship but the Bible tells us in Romans 12 that we are to be living sacrifices. That's what we are to be. Our lives are supposed to be a sacrifice for the worship and the glory and the honor of Jesus, the one who came back from the dead. And as Thomas declares, Lord, he reminds us that we are to be people of worship. I also love that he puts my in front of both of those things because it's so personal. It's not just that Jesus is Lord and God, it's that Jesus is my Lord and my God. 
I think far too many people look at Jesus and they think, yeah, he, he may be Lord and God, but they'd never make him their Lord and God. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is God of the universe, no matter what you do with that information. But the greatest hope and joy and peace and love is found for those who make him their Lord and God. And then Jesus uses this moment to teach us something. It says in verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus earlier had rebuked people for uh, not believing despite seeing in John 4, 48, unless you see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you'll never believe. Um, and, and, and so this is a common theme in the book of John, seeing and believing. And, and some people see and they don't believe. Some people don't see and they don't believe. Some see and believe. Some don't see and do believe. There's kind of four categories of people. And here Jesus looks at Thomas and he's like, hey, you saw and you believed, but there's actually a special blessing for those who don't see and still choose to believe. Now, that's great and that's helpful to us, right? Because we will never, we will never, this side of heaven in eternity, be able to stick our fingers in the wounds of Jesus. We will not have the opportunity that, that Thomas had and Jesus says, there is an extra special blessing for you if you will believe anyway. Now, that's a, that begs a question, like why would you believe if you don't see, right? I mean, I think that's an important question because a lot of people say, well, that's great, but I don't believe, you know? I mean, good that there's an extra special blessing, but I don't do it. And so I'm not gonna hash these out. If you wanna talk about what I'm about to say next, I would love to sit down and have coffee with you and discuss these things. But I think there's some ways and some reasons that you ought to believe even though you have never seen. Uh, one, and maybe this sounds like a cop-out, it is a bit, but believing doesn't really cost you much. Uh, in some cultures it does, but here in America it doesn't. And so I would say if you're hesitant to believe for one of the, the two reasons that I said earlier, like because you're scared it might be true, you're scared it might not be true, like just take the plunge. Like don't let those two reasons suspend your belief, but dive in and just find out what happens because here's why I think, I think personally, my experience that believing is the greatest gift of all. And anything you think you might have to give up, anything, any way that you might get hurt, I'll tell you that the good side of that is so much better, which leads me uh, to another point. I think it's just so helpful to believe. Like, I mean, I just think it's good for my life. I, I, I love everything about Jesus to be honest with you. And uh, even if I was hesitant to dive all the way in, even if I had struggles with doubt, I'd want to believe because Jesus is so good and following him is good. So many things in our culture that, that we value are only because of the person of Jesus. Like, I mean, the fact that we think all people ought to be valued, that is a, that is stems from Christianity, even if you think Christians don't always follow that, which that's fair, but like that stems from this person named Jesus that we value all people 
equally, that we believe people have rights like and, and should have freedom. That's, that's a Jesus thing. The, the fact that we think people should be able to worship whatever God they want to, that comes out of Jesus. Like That is from the early church as an extension of the way of Jesus. Before that, it was just like, kill people who don't worship your emperor. Like That's how it went. I think believing is good. Here's better reasons, I think, to believe. It's logical and rational. Uh, The story of Jesus and what he did for humanity is both logical and rational. I don't believe this story because I put all the facts together and, and came to the conclusion that it was right. However, I don't think I would believe it. I hope I wouldn't believe it if I had tried to put the facts together and they didn't come out right. If it was just a stupid, illogical story, I would like to think that I would reject the Christian faith, but I've studied it a long time and I believe that it is logical and rational to believe that Jesus is the son of God who came to die for our sins. And finally, I think these testimonies are so important. My testimony, but the Bible's testimony. Here is an eyewitness telling the story about how his friend Thomas did not believe at first, but upon meeting Jesus came to believe. And what I've said throughout this series, and I think it's so important, is that most of these people who had these encounters with Jesus would eventually be killed because they believed and held to the truth that Jesus came back from the dead. One of the biggest reasons that I believe that Jesus came back from the dead is because these guys who wrote this down in scripture were willing to sacrifice and die for this belief. It's often posited that that maybe they just made up this lie in order to gain political power or whatever. Well, they were the stupidest humans in history and they don't write like stupid people, but they were the stupidest humans in history if they all were willing to die or be exiled to an island because they made up this lie. I mean, what did they stand to gain by standing by this lie? I do not know. And so I believe in large part because of the testimony of guys like Chan who sacrificed everything only after encountering the resurrected Savior. So there's a lot of reasons. But what I want, what I, want, what I just want to have out there for today is that I would ask any of you who don't believe that you would consider why you don't believe. Now, maybe you've looked at all the facts and you've just found it to be wanting and fine. Still like to talk to you about that, but fine. But if you're just not believing because you don't want it to be true, because there's things in your life that you think you might have to change or beliefs that might need to be shifted, stop and examine the evidence Or if you're just worried, like, what if I get my hopes up and I get crushed and it just doesn't work out? Like, just dive in because there is an incredible blessing for you if you will. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think that there is incredible joy to be found for those who believe. And some of you, most of you here have come to believe that Jesus died and came back to life so that you might have a brand new life, be forgiven for your sins, enter into a relationship with God and go to heaven someday. 
And I would say to you, if you believe that, then it ought to compel you to worship. And you know that, right? Like, that's not a surprise to any of you here. And I knew before I wrote down anything on this sermon that this wasn't going to be like, hey, I got some new information for most of you. But instead, I want you today to think about how when you leave this place, if you are a believer, you believe that our God came from heaven to earth and he died for your sins and he came back to life, conquering sin and death forever for you. And so when you walk out of here, I hope that you'll just have a little bit more excitement, passion, uh, emphasis on living as though Jesus is your Lord and your God because he is. So either, either, either examine this and its validity and truthfulness if you're not a Christian or if you are, Leave this place a little bit more ready to go out and worship him because he came and died and rose again. Let me pray that we'll do that. Lord Jesus, you know that I can, um, I can, I can uh, be a person, Lord, that, that goes through my days not really worshiping. And, uh, and I think we can all do that, Lord. We can forget how great it was the first time, the first moment that we encountered you. And I hope that for those of us who are Christians that we would... Uh, see afresh how exciting it is to know that you came back from the dead, Lord. And I pray that we would worship you more fully this week because of what we read about here today, Lord. God, I pray for those who are out there right now, Lord. And I know there's people out there watching and listening who are hesitant to believe in you, who are hesitant to Make you, God, their Lord and their God. And I pray, Lord, that you would, whatever the walls are, whatever the, the hang-up is, I pray, God, that you would, would, would tear it down and, and you would speak to them in the ways that you do and you would help them to encounter you today, Lord. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe if we've never, if we've never seen, if we've never touched God. But I also know, Lord, that most often, when people come to believe, it's because you do something unique and special in their lives. And I pray for those who need it, like Thomas, Lord, that you would do that today. I pray all of these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.